when we pulled up into the parking lot, we were greeted and uh, she was given a gift, and I see her whole family was. Uh, what a tremendous um, hospitality that shows. I'm from Lebanon, that's my country of origin, and if you know anything about Lebanese people, or Arabs in general, uh, hospitality is the cardinal virtue. And if you go to a Lebanese person's home, you'll be gift, not given, you know, given gifts specifically, although sometimes you are, but you certainly will be fed. Um, and that's part of the, uh, the culture here. So when I came here and I saw that level of hospitality, I knew I was in a place that uh, was very homey and very much like that. So thank you very much for inviting us here. Um, I just got done running the Chicago Marathon about two hours ago, so I had a great time. Um, so uh, that's why I, I didn't make it to the first service and second service. I was really fast. Um, I've never run a marathon in my life. My wife has run a marathon, and after she described it to me, I was like, yeah, I'm never running one. When she described what it's like from between miles 22 and, or, and the end there, 26, but yeah, only people who are insane do that. Um, so if you have done one, well, you should get it checked. Um, but here we are talking about this, uh, this topic of Islam in terms of the idea of finding your voice. We need to find our voice today when it comes to Islam. We find, we find two voices, I think, that are prevalent in the world. We find the one voice that says they're all out to get you. Muslims are out to get you. They hate the West. They hate everything about Christians. They hate everything about non-Muslims and are here to subjugate all of them. On the extreme other side of the, of the discussion is their voice is, well, everybody it believes in the same thing, and we're all just trying to get to the one place. Um, you know, all roads lead to God, as it were, and um, Muslims are just peaceful people, and there's nothing to worry about. Both voices are wrong. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Muslims are people. People are imperfect, and they will do imperfect things. That's the reality of life. But they're not sitting around, you know, behind the stairwell, twisting their mustaches, thinking of ways to blow it up the airport up. They're not all thinking that. Some are. That's true. And the reality is we have to face is that there are parts of Islamic tradition that are very problematic, that Muslims have to describe and, and actually deal with when it comes to some of these more violent issues. They have to deal with it. And there are Muslims who are dealing with it, and who are trying to deal with it. But most of them are not actually violent people. They are here in America. There's one and a half billion Muslims in the world. That's, I don't know what that equates to, something like, I think, 25% of the population of the world now is Muslim, or at least somewhere about there. That's a pretty big amount of people who are claiming to be Muslim, and they're coming to our cities and to our shores, whether it's through the, uh, uh, the recent uh, uh, refugee crisis, or it's through immigration, or it's just through birth rates, or it's just through conversions. Muslims are here. In fact, one of the most successful conversion um, ministries that ever happened, it's not exactly Orthodox Islam, was born out of Detroit, where I'm from, and of course Chicago, right here, uh, the Nation of Islam incredibly influential around the world, and especially in the U.S. in terms of spreading uh, Islam. So if you don't know any Muslims, just wait 10 minutes and you'll meet one. Um, they're coming, they're here, they're your co-workers, either you know them personally or you know them tangentially. They're down the street or they're down the hall or whatever it might be. We need to, sh to, to, to have a voice to these people. What I want to share with you is the grand central question of Islam and how you can find your voice in answering that question in a way that the gospel gives true meaning, not only to the heart, but also to the mind. Now, I've written a book on this. It's not out in the lobby. We didn't bring any this time uh, for sale. But if, you wanted, if you're interested, after you hear what I have to say, don't, you're not interested yet, of course, but if you're interested in what I have to say, I have a book called Grand Central Question. And in that book, I address three major worldviews that are not Christian secular humanism or atheism, the pantheistic worldviews of the East, and all their Western iterations here in the West, like uh, the New Age, Scientology, and these things, and then Islam. 
and I say, what is the central question? All these religions are trying to answer, and worldviews are trying to answer four main questions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, among other questions. But every worldview has a central question, a centralized question that they claim to answer better than anybody else does. And so in the book, I try to affirm the question while offering the gospel as the answer to every worldview's central questions, whatever they might be. So grand central question and available in every format you can think of, uh, Kindle, iBook, eBook, um, Audible, paper, you know, the unconventional one now is paper. Um, it's available that way too, believe it or not. Uh, so there you have it. But anyway, enough about that. What I want to talk about to you, with you today is the central question of Islam. What is that central question? And it has to do with that origin issue and who God is. Is there a God and who is he? And of course, Muslims believe there's a God. Now, before I get into the nitty-gritty of Islam, and I'm not going to get into tons of detail about the religion itself in terms of the five pillars of Islam, the five major practices, and the six fundamental beliefs, and the different denominations and all that. There are plenty of articles and plenty of books you can read that give you all of that information. What I want to do is give you the, right to the heart of it, talk to the central heart of Islam, what it seeks to answer, and how Christianity answers it, I think, better than uh, anything else can. Muslims are monotheistic. Of course, they believe in one God. Now, Muslims believe that that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, and Jacob. The, the Hadith literature uh, uh, in uh, Islam, which is the traditions of Muhammad. That's how the traditions, what he said and did. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, calls God the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Ishmael, and Isaac. So they, 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 Muslims believe that they're worshiping a God in the Abrahamic tradition. Monotheistic, which means that they don't allow for a trinity, however. There's such a thing in the trinity, it's considered blasphemous in Islam for God to be a triune being. And that God, they call him Allah. Now you've heard this, of course, Allah is the God of Islam. But the interesting thing about that is don't get hung up on this word. That's the first thing. Don't get hung up on this word. This word literally means the God. That's what it means in Arabic. Al meaning the Ilah, meaning God, Allah, uh, is Al-Ilah put together. It's a, it's a sort of a, a mashing of two words. Every Arabic Bible that you ever read in the Middle East uses the word Allah for God. It isn't the name of God that's the issue or what you call that God. It is the character of God that's at issue. We have very different concepts of what the one supreme being is like. That's the difference. Now, why do I go into all that? The reason is this. We have a commonality with our Muslim friends. We believe in one God as well. We believe that that one God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe that God is the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as well. The question is, what is he like? Who is he? Now, for the Muslim, they believe in a central idea. You've heard this phrase. I think you've heard it. Allahu Akbar, right? You've heard that phrase before? And you're getting nervous because the Arab guy had said it in the crowd? Um, <laughs> Uh, don't get too nervous, though, because um, Allahu Akbar, although also used as a terrorist chant, sort of a battle cry for the, for the radicals, is actually a phrase Muslims all over the world use in very non-threatening ways. They'll say it as a prayer and a praise when they get bad news or when they get good news, when they walk into a house, so they'll say Allahu Akbar. It literally means God is greater. That there is no being that is greater than God. So for the Muslim, the central idea of Islam is God's greatness. And every doctrine, every idea in Islam from God's oneness called Tawheed, from God's judgment, from God's actions, and all these things are a reflection 
of his greatness, an expression of his greatness. Now that's something we have in common with our Muslim friends as well, because the Bible says in Psalm 145 that God is great, so, so great that his greatness is unsearchable. It knows no limits and no ends. You can never conceive of a being higher than God. So for the Muslim, God is the greatest possible being. For the Christian, God is the greatest possible being. Now that's the commonality upon which we stand. That's the platform, not the bridge. I don't like the bridge analogy because I think the bridge analogy implies a two-way street, like they can both be right about everything. And this is simply not the case. They have major differences. Rather, it's a platform. God's greatness is a platform from which we can stand with our Muslim friend and then jump off into the pool of our differences and figure out who's right and who's wrong. We can't both be right. We can't. That's not how it works. As I said before, you've heard this phrase, all paths lead to God, right? Or all roads lead to God. Well, anyone who says that is well-meaning but wrong-minded. Because if you're saying that, what you're trying to say is all paths lead to God because all religions are equally valid. What you're actually saying and not realizing it is that all religions are equally invalid. That's what you're actually saying. Because anyone who says all roads lead to God does not understand where the roads actually lead. Because they don't even claim to lead to God. I'll give you an example of this. In Islam, your salvation is not an unmitigated presence with God. You don't get to have communion with God in Islam. You go to the paradise God has created for you, and that's a very physical thing, a physical resurrection like Christians believe as well, but it's not the same thing. You don't have to go to be with God. You are with uh, each other in a paradise God has created for you, but he is not there in terms of the unmitigated presence. He's omnipresent in one sense, like he's here in the room for Muslims, but not in an intimate, imminent way. He just does not condescend to be with you that way. Contrast that with Christianity, which says that the ultimate goal is to be in a place where eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man that which God has prepared for those who love him. The reason why it's so unfathomable is because you get to be with God himself. That's the goal, communion with God. So Islam says paradise, Christianity says God. So when you say all roads lead to God, you're just mistaken. You're disrespecting Islam because Islam doesn't even claim to get you to God. And you're not really reading all the religions. Buddhism, for example, teaches you to become nothing. That's the goal of original Buddhism is to lose that sense of self and eventually work out your karma to become nothing. It's a very strange recruiting poster, but that's the recruiting poster. That's what it says. Become nothing. That's what the goal is. That is very different from the Hindu idea from which Buddhism was birthed, of the idea of becoming one with the universe. And the universe is itself God. Very different. So if you say they're all the same, you're just not really paying attention. Or at least your, your heart is in the right place, but your head um, uh, needs to wrap itself around. Not in an insulting way, I'm not trying to be insulting, but it needs to wrap around what these religions actually teach. So where do we go from here? What I want to do is offer you ways in which the Muslim search to worship a God who is truly great is a valid search, but I think the answers are found in the Gospels. Because if you are, Blaise Pascal put it this way, he put it so beautifully, he said, men despise religion because they fear that it may be true. The cure for this is to show them that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good people wish it were true, and then show them that it is. Make good people wish it were true, and then show them that it is. It's not just desire. It's actually a desire coupled with a satisfaction, a logical satisfaction for that. A Muslim 
wants to believe in a God who is great, how can you show them that the gospel is where that great God is found? Make it attractive, make them wish the gospel were true, and then show them that it actually is. Paul makes the same similar statement in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, when he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. He's not saying be engineer-like in your efficiency. He's saying, understand what they care about, who they are, what's going on in their life, so you know the best way to speak to them. And then he says, let your speech always be gracious as though seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. He doesn't say how you ought to answer each question, each religion, each objection. He says you are to answer each person. If you're a Christian and you're here and you want to you offer the hope of the gospel, a reason for the hope you have within you, you're not here to answer questions. That's not the job you have. I'm an apologist. As a Christian apologist, I defend the faith. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says to always be prepared to provide a reason or a defense. That word is apologia. It's not about being sorry about anything. An apologia is a defense for the hope you have within you to anyone who asks but do it with gentleness and with respect. Apologetics is not about being sorry for anything, although sometimes when you ask someone who's an apologist about something, it becomes the art of making somebody sorry they asked. Um, <laughs> but you are to answer people, not questions, because questions don't need answers. People need answers. So this idea of God's greatness, how do we, how do we understand this? You know, when I was a Muslim, I would often go, I played a lot of basketball. I know you're surprised, right? You're shocked. Um, <laughs> played a lot of basketball, and I would go to this um, school down the road from me uh, in the middle of the summer, in the hot days of the summer, <clears throat> and I would play ball, either play games or just do drills over and over again for hours and hours. And when I got tired enough, I would go over, and there's this play structure. Now, it's a school in the middle of the summer, so nobody's there. I would go in and sit on top of this wooden play structure, and I would just talk to God. One of my, sort of my rituals was not only the five daily prayers, but also to do the, 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 the talk to God, uh, just out loud, and ask him, oh God, there's so many Christians around me, and they don't understand who you actually are. They think they do. They think that, 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 God, that you're the Father, but you need help from the Holy Spirit and the Son. And if you need help, don't they understand that that God is not great? That they, you are not great if you need help? And they don't understand their trinity. They're, they're confused tritheists, oh God. How can I get them to become true monotheists? And this idea that God is, uh, that you are um, uh, incarnational, that you would come down and be a, be a man amongst us who has to have sore feet and gets tired and needs to eat and then eventually dies. God, this is not a true picture of your greatness. Help me to help them to see this and show them the truth about these things. So I would attack the Trinity. I would attack the incarnation of God in Christ and I would attack the cross itself as not making any sense because I thought my Christian friends wanted to believe in a God who was great but didn't. I hear you singing this, this uh, song in church, How Great Thou Art. You ought to change it to How Great Thou Aren't because your God is not great. And I'd ask them, let me ask you, why are you a Christian? And they'd say, well, I was, I don't know, I was raised in a church and we go to the church on Christmas and Easter and I guess I'm a Christian, because, well, because. And I'd say, really? That's your answer? Your answer is tradition? That's, you, you trust your eternal soul, your eternal salvation, to a worldview that somebody else believes? Have you not looked into it yourself? 
and almost none of them had. So I'd say, okay, well, if you believe it so much, defend, no, better yet, define the Trinity for me. And they couldn't even define it. How can you defend something you can't even define? And they have zero ability to respond to what I was saying. Then I'd say, this God you think is so great who creates the bil a universe billions and billions of light years across and yet creates subatomic particles that are, that, are, that are just impossible for us to even detect. How could this God be truly great if he becomes a human being, limited as, as he is? How could this be the case? And they have zero response to that. Very few had any response to that whatsoever. And then I'd launch into attacks about the Bible. And I'd say, the Bible can't be trusted. Don't you know the Bible's been changed? See, this is important. Muslims believed, the Quran, for example, the Holy Book of the Muslims actually references three books by name, um, and so does Islamic tradition. The Taurat, or the five books of Moses, the Torah, the Zabur, or the Psalms of David, and the Injil, which means the Gospel of Jesus. Torah, Psalms, Gospel of, Gospel of Jesus. As revelation that came down from God. Islam teaches, however, that those revelations became corrupted over time and were changed and added to and twisted and that the Quran was revealed to bring us back to true monotheism. So you see the sequence? The Bible's revealed over time, it becomes corrupted, and then hundreds of years later, the Quran is revealed through Muhammad to correct all the corruptions and bring us back to true monotheism. You see the timeline there. So I would attack the Bible this way. And very few Christians had any real understanding of how to respond to that. But there was occasionally this annoying Christian or two who actually knew what they were talking about and would engage with me in questions. And I'm a debater, I like to debate, so I don't mind if I win the debate, thank you very much. And if you just rolled over and died, it'd be okay with me. But they wouldn't roll over and die, they actually knew what they were talking about, so we had these discussions. And you come to find out that the Bible has incredible amounts of historical warrant for it. Not only is it historically accurate, but the Bible has been faithfully transmitted down through the centuries. We have 5,000 copies of the New Testament, very, either fragmentary or whole entire forms of it, in Greek alone, dating in some, in, in some instances to the first or early second century. That's a blip on the historical screen. It's so incredibly close to the original writings of it. We have uh, 24,000 plus, almost 25,000 copies of the New Testament in Greek and other languages that are incredibly old. We're seeing them all the time, these, these ancient documents. I held some of these in my hand, some of these incredibly ancient documents. Maybe you saw the news story that came out just a few weeks ago about this charred piece of manuscript of the Old Testament that they couldn't open up. If they opened it up, it would have crumbled into a million pieces. So they had to do this scan of the internal uh, contents of this rolled up scroll and they could virtually unroll it and they found out by looking at the ink on the scroll that it is identical, identical to the Old Testament we have today. And it's the oldest one, I think it's one of the oldest copies of the Old Testament we have in existence. Every time they, they stick a shovel on the ground in the Middle East and they pull it up, they find something that corroborates the Bible. Every time. Now, they were sharing this with me. And I began to look at some things and say, oh, you know what, though? The problem is that not only is the history in favor of the Bible never being corrupted, but the Quran is in favor of that as well. For, exa for example, most Muslims teach, like I said, Muslims teach the Bible was corrupted, the Quran came to fix the corruptions. But the Quran itself doesn't teach that. The Quran says, for example, in the chapter 5 of the Quran, verses 46 and 47, beginning in verse 46, 
where it says, let the people of the gospel, meaning Christians, judge by what God has revealed in the gospel or therein. And those who do not judge by what God has revealed are among the evildoers, or in one translation, the rebellious ones. Al-Fasikun is how it's pronounced in Arabic. See what, see what it, just, it just said? It's been saying? The Quran just said, the Quran in the 7th century says, people of the gospel, Christians, you judge, it's a command, well, yahkum is how you say it in Arabic. It is a command, you judge right now by what God has revealed in the gospel, and if you don't, you're evil. Well, hold on a second. If the Bible was corrupted, why is the Quran telling me to go judge by it? Seems like nonsense, right? Why would God say, judge by this book that's got horrible lies in it? Makes no sense. Same chapter, fifth chapter of the Quran, verse 68, where it says, O people of the book, meaning Christians and Jews, lestum ala shay'an is how you say it in Arabic. It literally means you are on nothing. Uh, better translation is, you have no foundation until you observe, present tense verb again, yuqimu is how you say it in Arabic, until you observe the Torah and the gospel and all that's been revealed to you from your Lord. How can they possibly observe the Torah and the gospel if the Torah and the gospel were lost or horribly corrupted? Why would the Quran reference as authoritative a book you can't trust? So you begin to look at it. There's other verses in the Quran too, I, won't, I don't have time to get into them, that point to the validity not only of the Bible itself, but to the testimony of the disciples of Jesus themselves. Remarkable stuff, remarkable stuff. So you see, the Qur'an, as the authority, can't allow a Muslim to actually dispute the, the Bible itself. In fact, think of it this way. The Qur'an says the Bible is an authority, but the Bible and the Qur'an say very different things. The Qur'an denies the, de the deity of Christ. It denies that Jesus is God. It denies the Trinity, and it denies even the crucifixion of Christ. It says they did not kill him nor crucify him, but it looked like it to them. Well, all those things are taught in the Bible, every, every last one of them. So if the Bible says the, the, sorry, if the Quran says the Bible is right and the Bible contradicts the Quran, then the Quran can't be right about that because it says the Bible is the authority. But if the Quran says the Bible is right and the Bible is wrong, the Quran is still wrong because the Bible was right. It was a conundrum I, de I, thought I dealt with for a long time. Not something that was terribly, terribly pleasant for me to have to deal with. I dealt with it for a long time. But then I began to see something. Remember what I said? God's greatness, Allahu Akbar, God is truly greater. When you think about that statement, think about what it means for God to reveal himself in revelation and then to entertain the idea that he would allow his revelation to be corrupted. The question is then, how is your God great? Here's what I mean. Just think about this for a moment. It's going to take a little bit of an intense concentration on this one, but you'll get it. It's pretty simple, actually. If the Bible, if the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospel was revealed by God as revelation, but became corrupted over time, only two things follow from that. Either God couldn't prevent it from being corrupted, or he wouldn't prevent it from being corrupted. If you can think of a second one, I'd love to hear it. I've searched for years now, still searching, for a third option, and there isn't one. So if God couldn't protect his Bible from corruption, that means men can overcome God's revelation, and they are more powerful, at least in this instance, than he is. If he couldn't protect it, then God is not all-powerful. If God is not all-powerful, then he's not great. Why worship that God? And a Muslim believes that God is all-powerful and can preserve his word. They believe the Quran's been preserved. 
why shouldn't they believe the Bible has been preserved? Of course, God could have done it. So option one is not open to a, to a Muslim, that he couldn't prevent it. Is option two any better, that he could have prevented the corruption of Scripture, but chose not to? Think about what Scripture actually is. Scripture is the only way you know who God is in any depth, what he wants from you, and how you are to behave in response to who he is. You know, the Bible says that you can get, you can understand who God is by looking at the creation. You can understand that God exists and that men are without excuse to know that there's a God out there by looking at creation itself through the design and all these things. But you know what you can't get by looking at a tree? The Ten Commandments. You can't get the Trinity out of that. You couldn't get all these things just by looking at, at, at nature. You've got to have specific revelation. That's why God gives it to us. Specific revelation to know who he is, what he expects, and how do you get to heaven. Without that, if he, if he allows that to be lost for hundreds of years, that means that the only way you get to heaven is lost. We go to our deaths believing damnable blasphemies that send us to a damnation for eternity, and it's God's fault. Why would you believe in that God? Why would you worship that God? a God who could have st stopped you from believing false things um, about him by just having it around. You might believe false things because of your own free will, but at least you had the source you could have gone to. Why would you trust that God? If, and if he says, well, I'll protect the Quran from corruption. Really? You didn't do this one. You've got a bad track record. Why would I trust you? You see the problem? If God couldn't protect the Bible, he's not great. If God wouldn't protect the Bible, he's not great. But a Muslim believes that God is great. So for a Muslim to believe that God is great, you have to believe as a Muslim that God could, that God would, and history shows us that in fact God did protect his word. That's a God who is great. What does this word say? Some powerful truths in it. If you don't mind me sharing just a little bit of my story on this one. I remember when I was telling Christians, why do you believe what you believe? And they'd say tradition. I'd say not good enough. And then they would be on their heels the whole time having to answer all my objections. Then there was two guys who came to the door at my university uh, apartment when I was an undergrad. And they wanted to talk about Jesus. Two guys, two Baptist guys came to the door. And I was like, wow, you guys deliver? This is great. Um, <laughs> and they came in and we had hours and hours of discussion. I wanted to prove to these two men that the Bible was full of errors and contradictions, so I grabbed this little tiny green Gideon Bible to show them the, uh, one of the inherent flaws in the Bible. And um, as I was reading it, this is what I came across. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and following. John the Baptist is talking to those who are coming to him to be baptized. And he says, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Of course, meaning God's judgment for your sin. And then he says to this, says them to this, don't, think even, don't even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, as if that would save them, of course. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. You hear what he's saying? Tradition won't save you. Truth will save you. I can make one, God can make one just like you out of a rock. Do you see that? He's been saying tradition's not good enough. I was saying tradition wasn't good enough. But in all the times that I ask Christians to defend their beliefs, and they say, tradition is my defense, and I say, not good enough, no Christian ever asked me, well, why are you a Muslim? And they were given them a chance. If they'd say tradition, I would jump all over it. And they were on the defensive the whole time. It was John the Baptist's words that got me to think about why I was what I was, 
What is the basis for what I am? Now, I would give you, if, if they had asked me, I'd have given them all this like arguments and evidence and reasons that I used to think were true, but I no longer think are true. But I would have some level of evidence. But the heart of the matter was this. Why I was I a Muslim? Because I had to be. I was born that way. I was raised that way. I formed my identity to be a good Muslim. And John the Baptist was the one who asked me. Isn't it remarkable, friends, that the word of God, born aloft by the Spirit, takes 20 centuries to get into the hands of a young Muslim skeptic, not intending to read or believe anything in this book, and it changes his mind? I didn't become a Christian that day, but it did set me on the path to saying, I'm going to believe something because it's true, not because I was born that way. And then seven year, nine years later, I became a Christian. Here's the thing. Never think that you are as eloquent as the Bible. Have all the arguments you want. I work for a ministry of, of evangelists and apologists. Ravi Zacharias is one of the greatest orators and speakers of our day. But Ravi will be the first one to tell you, he is not as eloquent as the words of the Bible are. May you never speak with lofty arguments in a closed Bible. It works on skeptics. It worked on me. Even if it's a small change. <clears throat> so that Bible that God has preserved shows that God is great. But then what does that Bible actually say beyond what I just read from John's words? It describes two more realities that I thought insulted God's greatness as a Muslim that I now believe demonstrated. The first one is the Trinity. Now this is the, this is the tough one. People always say, oh my goodness, the Trinity. Okay, here we go. And then how are we going to discern this one? How are we going to describe this? Muslims will go after this pretty much immediately because it's hard to defend as a Christian because it's hard to define as a Christian. One of the reasons is not because it's actually hard to defend or to define. It's because it's very hard. We don't talk about it very often in and of itself uh, in our Christian circles. We kind of just go, go past it. But if you understand it, I'm firmly convinced, I am firmly convinced the Trinity is the most beautiful truth given to us in Scripture. Every other doctrine of Christianity, including the atonement, makes sense because God is triune. But so many things about who God is and the greatness of God make sense in light of the Trinity itself. Let me go through this with you, if I could. The first thing I want to talk about is the Trinity's logical possibility. See, people often think the Trinity is illogical. If God is one and God is three, well, which is it, three or one? Because you seem to be confused. And you don't get it. And oftentimes Christians help them along in this confusion because we say, well, God is one God, and yet there's three gods. And like, well, that's, that's nonsense. No one, if you, if, you, if you say that, just go ahead and stop right now because that's not orthodoxy. Um, or God is one person with three personhoods. Well, that's just simply silly too. Don't, don't say that anymore. As opposed to what the Trinity actually teaches, that God is one in his nature and three in his personhoods. Now, when you think person, the problem why it's hard to, to grasp is because when I say person, you think of a human being, one human being. Like, well, how could there be three personhoods and not be three beings? Because you're using the word wrong, or in this context, at least, you're using the word wrong. When I say personhood or person, I mean, in this context, a center of consciousness able to relate to the outside world, to relate to other consciousnesses. Okay, that's what I mean. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this and give you some analogy. By the way, don't use, this is a, this is a free one, don't use um, earthly analogies to describe the Trinity. They're all going to fail. The water analogy is the best one I've ever heard, and it fails. So, oh, I heard it, oh, someone, someone uses it. <laughs> 
So just go ahead and use it, but acknowledge that it actually has some very serious limitations. It has some very, and I can go over that with you if you want to talk with me about it later, but some very serious limitations to it. Rather, what I do is go through the hard work of explaining the nature and personhood distinction. Here we go. Let me go through it. The nature of something is what it is. What it is. It's whatness, so to speak. If I hold up my iPad and I ask you to say, what is that? And what is this? What is its nature? What is its fundamental quality? You might say machine or computer or whatever, but its essential quality, its essential whatness is non-living thing. Right? Now you can look at me and you can point at me and say, what is that? And it's a little bit rude, but it's accurate. You can say, what is that? I have a nature as well. I have the nature of being a living thing. I have a whatness. So does the iPad. It's got a whatness. But you know what you can't say to the iPad? You can't say, who is that? You can't do that. I guess we do it a little bit with Siri now. We kind of talk to it. But if, if you do it too often and you fall in love with Siri, they take you away. I mean, it's time to get medicated a little bit. But um, it doesn't have personhood. It lacks person. It lacks a conscious center. It's got a whatness, but no who-ness. But you can say to me, who is that? I have a whatness, living thing and I am the living thing whose person is Abdu. So what something is, is its nature. Who someone is, is its personhood. God has one what. One, he is one divine being, and that divine being has three centers of consciousness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Eternally distinct. They eternally exist. The Father was always the Father. The Son is always the Son. And the Holy Spirit is always the Holy Spirit. And they've always been that way. And they always will be that way. They are eternally distinct from each other in terms of their who-ness. But they are one in terms of their whatness. They all share the same nature. So logically speaking, there you have it. It's possible. Now, do you get that 100%? The answer is no. Here's why. I don't. Here's why. You're not God. If you could understand your God that quickly, where I could explain God to you in two seconds, then your God is too small. I mean, think about that. Oftentimes, I remember saying this as a Muslim, I would say, you know, God in Islam, it's easy. He just, he's one in his nature, one in his person. There's no trinity, none of that stuff to have to explain. It's easy and straightforward, as if that was evidence of its truth. Actually, it counts against it, because if you are telling me, as a creator of all things, it's so easy that you can explain him, then you made him in your image, not the other way around. He's too easy. You don't understand what it's like to be eternal, do you? You know why you don't? Because you're not eternal. You had a beginning. You don't know what it's like to be all-knowing or all-powerful, because you're not all-knowing and all-powerful. These are things that make sense, that actually don't logically contradict but aren't fully understandable or comprehensible by the human mind. So the Trinity doesn't defy logic, but it does transcend comprehension. And that's perfectly fine. That's okay. That's step one. Step two, though, is that part of God, in terms of the, what Muslims and Christians long to understand, is God's greatness. Let me unpack this for you for just a moment. In Islam, God is the only uncreated being only God was uncreated. He's eternal. Everything else was created. Christianity, same thing. We agree so far. In Islam, you'll hear it said all the time, uh, people say, oh, in Islam, God is not loving and he stands aloof from us uh, at a great distance and doesn't care about us. 
Well, he does stand aloof from us in one sense, but he does care about us. It's not true. He does, the Quran has what's called, what are called the 99 names of God. And amongst those 99 names are names that are intensely relational names with humanity. He is Ar-Rahman. He is the compassionate. He is Ar-Rahim, which is the merciful one. Um, he is Al-Wadud. Al-Wadud means full of loving kindness or the friendly one. These are relational terms. So who God is in Islam is a very relational being. Uncreated being, intensely relational. He also is a being who needs nothing to be who he is in Islam. He doesn't need other things to be who he is. In Christianity, he is the uncreated being, also intensely relational. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 does not say God is loving. It says God is love. He defines love. He is the definition of relationality. And he also doesn't need anything to be who he is. Here's the problem. If God is uncreated, and God is one in his nature and one in his personhood, absolutely one, then when there was nothing else that existed, he was alone. And if he was alone, and he's relational, who was he relating to when all he was was alone? He needs to create something to be relational toward. Relationship requires an object. You didn't, well, you didn't walk into this room, for example, Get this fixed up here, and uh, thank goodness for the hooks on the uh, on the back here. Thank you. You didn't walk into this room and just love, right? You didn't. I love. Well, who do you love? I don't know. I just love. Well, what do you, what do you love? I don't know. I just love. You didn't do that, right? You don't do that. Love requires an object. You have to love someone. You have to love something. Requires an object. You are merciful and compassionate and all these things to someone or something. It requires a receiver and a giver. Well, if God was alone when there was no creation, he could not love or, or, or relate to anything because you have to have an object for that. Therefore, he needs something. And if he needs something, is he truly great? The Trinity tells us that God exists eternally as one being in community from eternity in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each loving each other. And they always did. God does not need anything else to exist to be relational. He defines relationship in and of himself. He is the existence of relationship from which all relationships flow. That's why when the Bible says God is love, it makes some kind of sense. Because it's not saying God is loving. God is love because God is relationship. That's what he is. That's who he is. He doesn't need anything to be who he is. Now, there's one step better than that. If God already defines relationship and doesn't need it, doesn't need you, sorry, doesn't need it because he already has it, why create you to mess it up? What are you around for? All you're going to do is goof it up, and he knows that, but he, he creates you anyway. If he doesn't need relationship, it doesn't need to be worshipped because he has this person, personal relationship with, every, with everything. He doesn't ask for worship, but doesn't need it. He's not like more God because you exist all of a sudden. Why create you? You see, here's the interesting thing. True love is self-giving. It's altruistic. It gives when it gets no benefit in return. God doesn't create you so that he can have relationship, as if he needs something. God creates you so that you can have relationship. It's utterly self-giving. And 
and is not in any way selfish. That's greatness. That's truly great. A God who does not need and a God who just gives. That explains why you want relationships so badly. Think about that in your life. If you're a person sitting in this room and everybody sitting in this room is a person, um, you want, have, protect, or mourn the loss of relationships. You are an intensely relational being. If you're the effect and God is the cause, what explains why you want relationships so badly? A being who doesn't define relationship or the being who does define relationship as the cause puts something on in you that reflects his eternal relationality. Your existence is better explained by a God who defines relationship. The Trinity is not a problem to be solved. It solves theological problems and shows us the God who is truly great. And then we come to the incarnation and the cross. I've gone on for some time, so I'm going to kind of speed through this a little bit. But one of the things I thought was the most ridiculous idea in Christianity was the idea that God would become a man and God would die on a cross. Like, my goodness, he would die at the hands of the very sinners he created? That seems to insult God's greatness in the highest order. Then we begin to see something about who God actually is as a result of that incarnation. He reveals, him to us, uh, he reveals, he reveals himself to us in the greatest possible way. God wouldn't reveal himself to you in a half-baked way. If he's the greatest possible being, everything he does is the greatest possible way to do it. Think about the greatest possible way to reveal yourself to someone. If you want to get to know me, <clears throat> getting, buying my book and reading it is a good way to get to know something about me, but you won't actually get to know me. Following me on Twitter might give you 140 characters at a time of what it's like to know who Abdu is, but you won't actually ever know me. The best way to know me is to encounter me, to get to know me. Now, God wants you to get to know him. He wants to reveal himself to you in the greatest possible way. He has sent his books. I am not even remotely denigrating the importance and import of the revelation of God. But the revelation of God, the Bible, is the revelation that points us to the revelation of God, the Word, made flesh. You see that? It's the Word of God about God, the Word, made flesh. That's why Hebrews says in chapter 1 that in various times and in diverse ways, God revealed himself to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has revealed himself to us through his son, who is the radiance of who God is and the exact imprint of his nature. You don't have to know about God. You can actually know who God is by the revelation of God in Christ, the greatest possible way to reveal. And it's so inspiring, too, when you begin to look at and see the poetry of God's incarnation, the inspiration it has. Think of the words of St. Augustine when he says that he so loved us that for our sake he became a man in time, though through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was born of a woman that he created. He was carried by hands that he fashioned. He sat in a cradle in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. inspires. But it also gives us something of a truth, not just a theoretical truth or an inspirational truth, but a historical truth. I want you to think about this. What is the greatest possible way to express the greatest possible ethic? Well, first, what is the greatest possible ethic? What is the greatest ethic? Not a trick question, actually. It's, just, it's obvious. It's love. Love is the greatest ethic of which any, any being is capable. 
Without love, justice is nothing. It's cold. And without love, mercy is meaningless. Without love, all these other things simply fail and fall by the wayside. Love is the greatest possible ethic. What is the greatest possible way to express love? Yeah, sending someone a nice note, giving them chocolates, uh, giving them gifts, whatever it is. This is a nice way to express love. But in some ways, that's about you. Because you want them to know that you're there, you know, you love, the, that, that they're the great, they're, you're, you're the, the, the romantic one or whatever it is. You're the Romeo to her Juliet. That story didn't end well, so don't use that as an example. But um, uh, there's a selfishness in our selflessness, isn't there? But if you're sitting here today as someone who has an intense relationship in your life and you want to know if the person next to you loves you or the person who's not here loves you, then you know them, they're loved by this, especially if you're a parent and you have a child or you're a spouse and you have a, a, a good marriage built on this, you'll know this. You know the other person loves you when they do something for you that benefits you and hurts them. Self-sacrifice is the greatest expression of love you can conceive of. Now, if you are capable of that as a human being, ought not God be able to be capable of self-sacrifice? If it's the greatest expression of love and God can't do it, then how is your God great? But if God can express self-sacrifice, that's a hint to his greatness. But think about this. When we sacrifice, we do it for those who love us and maybe for strangers. Whether you're in the service or you're a, a fireman or a, a police officer, these kind of things you might sacrifice for those who you don't know. But we often sacrifice for those who love us back. You know who we don't sacrifice for? We don't sacrifice for people who hate us. We just don't even think of it. Our love, as great as it can be through self-sacrifice, has its limits. But if God is greater, Allahu Akbar doesn't mean God is great. God is greater. God is greater than any being there is. Then he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. Where do you find that? Historically speaking, you find it in one place. It's the cross of Christ. Then there's that empty tomb. It shows he conquers death. He's not afraid of it, it doesn't, and it cannot hold him. Isn't it interesting that the place you find the greatest possible being is the place where he's not? He's not on that cross anymore, and he's not in that tomb anymore. But he bears those marks forever. When he walked into that locked room with his disciples there, and Thomas was doubting whether he was actually raised, he says that incredibly Semitic statement shared by Jews and Muslims alike. He walks in, shows Thomas the nail scars, and says, Shalom Aleichem, Salamu Aleichem, peace be to you. See this? This is peace. You are no longer at odds with God. I was in a dialogue, quick, quick short story, then I'll wrap this up. I was at a dialogue at a university in, in, uh, in Canada on who is God with a Muslim counterpart. And a young man walked up during the Q&A, was lined up with people, lined up. Q&A all the way down. Mostly Muslims asking me questions. But a young man walked up and asked us both a question. He says, can you be consistent with your belief system and your scriptures and be peaceful? Please explain from both perspectives. So I didn't want to explain from Islam's perspective. I looked at my counterpart to deal with. I said, that's not my problem anymore. That's his problem. He's got to deal with that. And I'm curious to know what he says. I can tell you this. I looked for peace my whole life. 
And I found him in the Prince of Peace. My founder, the one I follow, I don't have to apologize for a thing he's done because he shed no one's blood but his own. And he did that to conquer evil. See, Muslims often think that God in Christianity is weak because he can't just forgive sins and deal with it by just not even having to suffer. Whereas Christian will tell you that God is great not because he runs away from or avoids suffering, because he actually uses suffering to accomplish his own ends. Think of that phrase from James Stewart. We were singing the song about the strong name. And James Stewart wrote a book called The Strong Name where he makes this incredible statement about a God who is truly great. He says, it is a glorious phrase in the New Testament that he led captivity captive. It means the very triumph of his foes he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in the very moment, they were lifting up all the gates of the world for the king of the glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought that they had defeated God with his back against the wall, pinned, helpless, and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer despite the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. That's a God who was great. Let me quote from the Imam Ali. Imam Ali was the fourth Khalifa of the Muslims. He was the fourth leader of the Muslims, revered by Shiite Muslims all over the world. And I came from that background. <clears throat> he has this beautiful sermon, actually. I'm going to quote it for you. And there's a lot of truth in what he says here, so just bear with me for a moment. Just see what I'm going with, going with in a second. He says this. Among the believers there are three. There are those who worship God to attain his heaven. That is the worship of a merchant. There are those who worship God to avoid his hell. That is the worship of a slave. But there are those who worship God out of gratitude. That is the worship of free and noble people. Did you hear it? If you worship God to attain his heaven, you're just a merchant. If you worship God to avoid his hell, you're a slave of fear. But if you worship God out of gratitude, you're free and you're noble. As a Christian, that's exactly who you are. Not because you're great, because God is great. You worship out of gratitude for what God has done, not for what you can do. You don't have to worry about his heaven. You've already got it. You don't have to avoid his hell. It's been avoided for you. But if you're trying to worship God in a way that pleases him and does enough good things as Islam teaches to have your scale balance in favor and maybe God will accept you, you're either a merchant or a slave. But if you worship because it's already been done for you, then every good deed you do is still to his credit. And that is free and noble. When I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on that cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art.